welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. It is our second episode recorded in February 2023. Things are really heating up everywhere. We have a fantastic episode today. Going to talk a lot about Turkey. That might give you a hint as to who our guest is. We're just going to introduce himself in a second. Dmitry, how are you? Good evening, Conrad. It's been an eventful week, full of unexpected news and heated discourse. One of the primary points of discussion today will be the recent events in Turkey, and I think we have the perfect guest to assist us with our analysis today. So today we are, of course, joined by a good friend of ours, friend of the show, David Erhan. You may know him as David, the real Med White. David, introduce yourself to those who don't know you. How are you doing? Sir, yes, sir. Um, hello, everyone. This is David, and... My one personality is being Turkish and nothing else I say matters because of that. Well, just kidding, of course. But um, I have a YouTube channel. Um, it's David Adhan. And I, 90% of my YouTube is pretty much doing videos on Orthodox Christian theology. That's the main thing I focus nowadays. But I think it's pretty clear that I also have the same, I suppose, online background that a lot of people might share, especially since 2016, 2017. And so I'm kind of in the know about a lot of political events. Just I haven't been following them as as uh, as much as I used to. And yeah, as I said, I make videos on YouTube on Orthodox Christian theology most of the time. I'm I'm also on different social medias like Twitter at times as well, but not as often. And it's pretty much it's pretty much all all I have. Right, the ten percent is basically political stuff, geopolitical stuff, sometimes social commentary. Right, like what's going on, what event is happening, if it is interesting. Because 95% of the, I suppose, events that occur are, in a sense, manufactured. It just doesn't matter, like the whole like balloon stuff and, and all that kind of stuff. There's always interesting discussion and all that. But I, usually, I tend not to comment on that kind of stuff. I tend to comment about stuff that concerns like people directly and um, religi- religiosity and things like that. Because that's currently, at least for me, is interesting to look at. But... I think that uh, we can cover that, of course, but I think we're going to be also covering a lot of events that matter for Turks, such as the earthquake that recently happened, which is a, which is a massive tragedy. I think last time I checked, there was like 19,000 pe- people confirmed to be dead in Turkey alone at the, at the time of this recording. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here, of course. Now, everybody, we're going to have David's stuff linked below. His Orthodox videos have been very influential on myself, a lot of other people as they've come to Orthodoxy, at least English language-wise. So be sure to check all that out. We're probably going to talk about icons near the end of this stream as well, which has been an ongoing theme in recent Orthodox Protestant dialogue and whatnot. But David, as he mentioned, he is coming to us from Turkey, which of course is the reason why he's our expert to kind of talk to us about what's going on this this past week with the tragic earthquake with, as our show, we, you know, we talk a lot about Turkey and how Turkey's relevant towards the geopolitical situation, the ongoing third world war and whatnot. So with all of that, I think we'll just hop on right into it. Uh, David, if, I mean, if you want to talk about whether it's the earthquake first or whether it's the upcoming elections and kind of how they work into each other, what is your, and maybe of course, a lot of people listening don't have a big background in Turkish politics. What are you kind of, what are you seeing on the ground in Turkey as kind of the political situation as this disaster has unfortunately transpired? Yeah, um, I think we can go, like, talk about each political party and, like, what their main team is as well. But related to the earthquake itself, the way things are going is that the main, at the very least, what I am seeing on Twitter, um, because things are a bit different on legacy media, but even in legacy media, there's been some kind of a outcry against on this issue the in in terms of politically is that 
there's there's basically a rule, unwritten rule, that pretty much most people have to follow. Is that you don't bring up stuff like politics or sports competition or anything like that in a time like this. The the time for now is to you know be together, be tight knitted, and all of this kind of stuff. But um, there also has been a lot of people, of course, asking questions about you know we've had an earthquake like this pretty much 24 years ago, right? The 1999 Marmara earthquake was a big, it was a huge earthquake, right? Uh, it affected a lot of the big cities in Turkey, pretty much in the Marmara coast. So it affected Istanbul, it affected Iznik, it affected even provinces like Sakarya, right? Which is, you know, not super far away, but kind of far away, like related to other, other cities and stuff. So the main, the main complaint is haven't we learned our lesson, right? And in that regard, uh, Erdogan's getting a lot of flack. He's also getting a lot of flack because he himself have now admitted, and like this was stated before he himself admitted, but he himself now admitted that his government has been a bit slow, slower than he will have desired when it comes to the issue of earthquake response. And this is kind of a big deal because, you know, he's been, he's been, he's been in charge for many, many years. And one of the things that he said, well, this is kind of unrealistic, but one of the things that he said against Greece is, well, you know, one day we might suddenly come to your shores, right? One day we might suddenly come and you, you might not know what's going on. Well, he hasn't even been able to come to a province in Turkey that's affected by the earthquake in a day, right? It took him like two days, basically, to form a actual response. Even, in two, even two days later, many cities were pretty much left alone. It was only like NGOs and individual people who were supposed to help, and some of the military, right? Like all, not all of the military, or not like a sizable amount, but some of the military. Which this is why right now there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people of particularly of Syrian origin that are looting places, that are stealing stuff from people, that are like blocking blocking ways, right? Like blocking the highways, not not highways, but like they're blocking certain passages to cities that are affected by the earthquake so that they could just raid stuff from, from the cars and take stuff from themselves. A big reason why stuff like that's happening is because there's, there's not an order and that's the government's job, right? So a lot of it is just people trying to govern themselves. And I, I will say they govern themselves quite well. Like when they do catch these people, they, they beat the crap out of them, which is how you're supposed to treat them, right? And then they call the police and the police handles it. But yeah, uh, this kind of stuff, this kind of banditry happens pretty, pretty much. And even, as I said, even Erdogan has admitted that they've been a bit slower than he'd like when it comes to earthquake response. And another thing that was going on is that uh, a lot of the things that you're supposed to do, like setting off fires, right? There's, there's places that were burning and places that, you, that need help, right? A lot of that has been handled by the opposition party, right? The Liberal Republican Party. And I'm, I'm not a Liberal Republican Party shell myself. I'm... I try to look at things in a neutral perspective, but it is pretty clear that they've been, well, first of all, they've been dis disobeying, in a sense, the government because they haven't gotten a, the government that allowed them to try to set off the fires, try to rebuild the airport and all of this kind of stuff. Like they didn't get a confirmation. They just did it themselves pretty much. But obviously the rules are being enforced in that regard. And they're basically saying, you know, if you're going to arrest us, come and arrest us. You know, we, you know, like, are you, are you going to be able to do something like that? And obviously if I don't arrest them, then, he didn't lose it like, for very obvious reasons, right? So he can't really do that. So yeah, like politically speaking, that's pretty much what's going on. The, the opposition party is trying to actually help people. 
I think the governing party is also trying to help people. They just haven't been able to do that in a very efficient way. So in terms of optics, unless you're explicitly only watching pro-Erdogan media, like if you're watching neutral media, it's looking very bad in terms of optics for Erdogan. Obviously, if you're pro-Erdogan, there's obviously ways to spin it positively for Erdogan's perspective and all of this kind of stuff. But um, from a neutral perspective, the optics are not on Erdogan's side on this issue. Yeah, so for all those, I guess, American viewers listening, like notice how David mentioned the looting and the maraudering happening in those territories of Syria and Turkey actually affected by the disaster. Like it probably remind you of the collateral effects of the Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, you know, the hurricane disaster which occurred in 2005 when New Orleans as well as certain cities and towns in Florida were just completely looted, almost ran, ran by gangs of, you know, uh, looters and people of that sort, criminals essentially. And Ukraine as well, like how much maraudering and looting is ongoing following the SMO and, of course, the Ukrainian government just simply, um, you know, completely extinguishing all authority over certain towns and not particularly following following up with any uh, sort of law enforcement. And, you know, I guess Erdogan's challenge here, I, I suppose, is to kind of how to brand and how to surf this wave of this disaster, how to uh, politically market it in his favor, right, David? I mean, from what I can see here, he's at least two days yeah. after the event. Yeah, he's like tr- at least trying to attend. Like his pre- his staff is probably telling him, "Look, you have to attend the sites affected. I know it's dangerous. There may be aftershocks after you know the initial." sort of reverberations of the tectonic blades or whatever happened there on the ground but you still need to visit you need to be at least in appearance appear as if you care about what's going on and maybe he does care i'm not too familiar with him personally but again it's it's a huge uh marketing challenge for him politically speaking a big public public relations challenge how can he push this in his advantage because yes the election in turkey is coming up at the beginning of june of this year so that's roughly four months away and erdogan only a few days ago announced three months long uh, three month long emergency in turkey where the entire state apparatus will essentially be focused specifically on disaster relief and saving the people affected by the disaster here on the ground so essentially he's kind of redirecting everybody's attention away from, you know, geopolitical events, which we will discuss later on in this podcast, but also kind of focusing on the efforts on the ground. So I guess you're completely right, David, that, yeah, whatever happens with, you know, with this event, it, it will affect the, the presidency of Turkey and of Erdogan personally. Like, will he surf the wave or will he fall off the surfboard here? In, in terms of public relations, I will say that the whole Quran burning stuff that was going on in Sweden and Denmark was probably the best thing that he could have asked for. This earthquake is probably the worst thing he could have asked for in terms of public relations. I think it's not it's not as devastating as like, you know, like it's not like election losing by itself. There's obviously ways to maneuver it. And he has, a, as I said, he has a very strong lobby. He has a very strong set of supporters who are like willing to, even if he does something wrong, they're willing to spin things in the best possible way. Or there are some people who are very good at concern trolling where it's like, well, you know, Erdogan might not be the best, but who's going to come in charge? You know, the other guys aren't, good, aren't as good as well, right? This kind of like concern trolling campaign is also something strong. Uh, but the fact is, as I said, a lot of people, and I think they do have a point, a lot of people are pointing fingers at Erdogan and pointing out that, hey, we could have prepared for this earthquake better. Look at, for example, Japan, right? They have They have insane earthquakes happening very regular, much more regularly than, than we are getting. And they have the technology to not be affected by it. Whereas in Turkey, there's only very, very few buildings that use the te- technology that Japan is using uh, to keep themselves safe from the earthquake, for example, right? So there's um, very poor planning, right? Which government has a hand in. Obviously, 
you know, people who work on these houses also have a hand in that as well. They, a lot of the resources themselves where people have to cut, people have to use those resources in a cheap way, so to speak, so that those buildings may be cheaper, so that the rent is cheaper because rent is skyrocketing. And the reason why rent is skyrocketing is, well, the refugee crisis is one of the, one of the reasons there's a lot of foreign investments going on, right, in different parts of Turkey where a lot of people of Arabic descent, for instance, uh, Russians as well, are are buying property in Turkey and the prices are skyrocketing because of that and the rent, rent, rent is pretty high. And one of the things that they do to alleviate that is basically make the, make, make the love and houses as cheap as they possibly can so that people can actually pay for it. Because at, at a certain point, if they try to, you know, there won't be enough houses to make pretty much if they, if they didn't try to cut corners, basically. Well, there's also still regulations all of that, but it, it kind of gives you an idea about like how this could have happened and how this can happen in, for example, Istanbul as well, right? I definitely believe that if this earthquake happened in Istanbul, we'd, ha- we'd see very similar devastation. And just to correct my earlier figure, uh, I said 19,000. Well, the figure has been updated. At the time of this video's recording, it's 20,665 people that are confirmed dead. I don't. I can't see how many people were, are injured, but it also says eighty thousand people have been have been rescued, right? Have been rescued from the operators as well. And a big reason, a, a big thank you to a lot of the different countries that are sending their rescue operators, like from Germany, from from Greece, from Armenia, from Poland, from Azerbaijan, and all of these different countries um, have been de- definitely very very helpful in terms of actually rescuing people from the rubble. So that's. Something that I would like to say as well. Oh, Lord have mercy. We hope that it doesn't, that Death Town doesn't continue to climb too high. But I saw some unfortunate estimates that some say it could be up to 180, 190,000 people ultimately dead at the end of this whole thing, which I hope and pray isn't, isn't the case. But we've talked about a lot so far with this earthquake. Uh, David, again, we've ta- said a lot of our audience isn't the most familiar with Turkish politics, despite what we would consider, I would say, of the past decade and even in the future, this upcoming election is so, so, so critical for geopolitics, for anybody in the West, especially if you're in a NATO country, because this will basically decide Turkey's role in NATO, whether they happen to just be a NATO member and really play by their own rules, or if they're actually going to be part of the greater American apparatus in Europe and the Mediterranean. And because of that, of course, it was interesting that David said that the uh, Quran burnings were the best thing that Erdogan could have asked for, and the earthquake is the worst. And I have theories about both of those and how Russia and the U.S. respectively could possibly be behind them. Of course, we're going to get into HARP and some of the other things later. Don't worry. But as far as the as the politics there is this upcoming election and the standing of the – you mentioned the Liberal Democrat Party and everything. Maybe break down some of the other parties, the dynamics, the public perception right now of – NATO, the war in Ukraine, Erdogan himself, and kind of the situation there so we can get a bit of a picture as we then break down what we might think really went on perhaps in the past week. So in Turkey, there are uh, the main parties are Erdogan's party, right? Which it's, it's the, well, in Turkish, it's the Adalet ve Kalkınma Partisi. It's the justice and I forgot what Kalkınma is, but it's like, Basically, let's say the Justice Party, right? Like they're the they're the one in charge. That's the party in charge. That's where uh, Erdogan, a lot of his people are from, basically, and they are pretty much known as the pro-Islamic party. With you know, 
political Islamist goals, right? And a lot of people think, you know, there's Sharia at the end of it. But one thing that people need to know about Turkey is that Turkey is one of the very few Muslim-heavy countries that's secular and a significant part of the population is against Sharia. And the, a big reason for this is because of Kemalism, because Atatürk, who is considered to be the savior and the founder of the Turkish Republic, he is pretty much against Sharia. And his, his main, one of his main values is secularism, right? So if you openly start talking against secularism, it will be very bad in terms of optics because everyone in Turkey is already indoctrinated in a sense to be pro Atatürk. Obviously, there are some people that are against him, but they're very, there's very few of them that are actually vocal about it. If you're against him, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be quiet about it. You're supposed to be uh, a bit, way more subtle about it. You can't just go out and say, I'm against Kemalism. Like, I think it's bad. Like, you can't really say that at the very least in, publicly because pretty much every single party has to pay respect to Kemalism pretty much that's pretty much how it works in Turkey it's it's the idol of Turkey in a sense um, and I'm not saying this in a sense that I'm negative towards him uh, or or positive towards him for that matter it's it's a, it's a fact of Turkish politics so the justice party that Erdogan led basically is for political Islam they recognize the fact that Turkey is a Islamic country that's that's what they think of it as and that's their main main interest. They're they're the main ones that talk about how, for example, different Arabic countries are their brothers in the faith, right? Like that's a that's a rhetoric that they use. They're also the reason why there's a lot of Syrian refugees in Turkey. They're the ones that allowed there to be Syrian refugees. So what's interesting is that you will see in again, Western politics is the liberals that allow for refugees, but in Turkey it's the Muslims, right? The the Muslims are the ones that are actually fine with refugees. It's the it's the liberals and the nationalists that are actually against the Syrian refugees, which is very interesting. Obviously, there are some liberals. And what's interesting is that there are some people who support the, who are like political Islamists who use liberal talking points to justify uh, having a lot of these Syrian refugees in, in their own country, right? So it's very interesting to see that. Next is the Liberal Republican Party, the Jumhuriyet Halk Partisi, which is the party that Ataturk himself founded. So it's the, it's the, it's the Ataturk party. But they're the opposition party right now. Uh, it's led by Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who is... A lot of people think of him as a weak ruler who, at moments... Like, he can't seize the moment. He always, like, fumbles at, like, critical moments and makes a lot of people say, but what if he's, like... They're, like, secretly working together? Because he always, like, messes up. Uh, he always says something really dumb that he shouldn't say at, like, some of the, like, strangest moments. I can't really give examples right now, but, like, he will... He would like, you know, at times where like people have like some kind of sensitivity towards a Kurd issue, he will say something that sounds like he's supporting Kurdish terrorists, basically. Like it will, it will kind of sound like that, even though he isn't really saying that, but like he's like making, trying to make a different point that isn't even that intelligent. And a lot of people are looking at it as like, this guy's an idiot. Like, what is he doing? But yeah, he's the, he's the, you know, he's the, this party is a, is a very communist party, right? They are pretty much in line with, Ataturk's ideals, though sometimes they don't even know what those ideals themselves are. But I will say most of the time they are in line, right? Very, very honestly. This is why, again, though they are the liberal party, they're the left party in a sense, they're not really leftist. They're not, they're in fact pretty right wing. For example, they're nationalistic, right? Even though they're secularists, they are quite nationalistic. They, at the very least, officially don't have a lot of disrespect towards the idea of religion. 
It's just that they think that religion and politics are separate because, as I said, they're secularists. They don't, for example, Kılıçdaroğlu, who defends being in NATO, himself said, well, we're never going to allow um, American, you know, Americans to settle bases inside our own country, right? They're very big on national sovereignty. You don't see that usually with leftists. Leftists don't talk about national sovereignty in, in Western countries. But they're very big on national sovereignty because that's the whole ideal of Ataturk is national sovereignty. Like that's the basis of the national values. So you have to talk about national sovereignty. You have to talk about how you're going to be an independent country uh, and all of this kind of stuff. There's obviously other different values as well. So there's obviously some kind of, um, how should I say, but, you know, being the liberal party, they, are all, they obviously have some kind of, how should I say, um, welfare state policies, right? They believe Turkey should be a welfare state. Right. So whatever you see Sweden is, whatever you see all these European countries that people point, they point out to those countries and they say we should be like those countries. Right. Which there's there's a bit of a conflict here. Right. You talk about national sovereignty, you talk about nationalism, but then you talk about being a you know welfare state, which actually, in my personal opinion, the logical conclusion of being a welfare state eventually leads to accepting refugees, eventually accept leads to accepting immigration. And they're also these people also are generally big fanboys of the West, right? That's kind of the, they don't talk about it as openly, but like a lot of their followers are big, like pro-Western people. Then there is the EU party. Oh, in, in English, it's literally called the good party, but EU is a Turkish symbol, right? It's a Turkish symbol. That's why they use it. It's not because they call themselves a good party or anything like like They actually try to call themselves that. Um, its leader is Meral Akşener, who's a woman, which... Uh, a lot of people might know, like, because in, in Turkey, people might have this conception where it's like, you know, politics, it's all just men, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, it is true, but it's not unsurprising to see women in charge, right? Um, there, was a, there was a female president, prime minister in Turkey a couple of years ago as well, who was very ruthless, to be honest. And Meral Akşener, so there are two nationalist parties, the Milliyetçi Hareket Partisi, which is led by Devlet Bahçeli, who is pro-Erdogan, right? He's with the Justice Party. And then there is the EU party led by Meral Akşener, who is with Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu and the Republican Party, right? So they have a coalition with the Liberal Republican Party. But they are more right-wing than the Liberal Republican Party. They're, they're more, you know, they're more friendly with Islam. The Liberal Republican Party might seem a bit antagonistic, but they're more friendly with it, even though they're also secular, right? Um, they're, they're way more nationalistic in, in a different sense. Uh, they are more traditional, basically. And that's that's the key thing. Is that they're basically the Liberal Republican Party, but they're more traditional and they emphasize less on the liberal aspects of Kemalism, pretty much. They're, I will say, the way I look at it, they pretty much symbolize most of what Turks think, most of what, like, educated right-wing Turks, right? They're the party for the educated right-wing Turks. The Liberal Republican Party is the, is the party for the educated left-wing Turks. And then there's the other like extreme parties that are like Communist Party and all this kind of stuff, but no one, you know, votes for. It. Uh, but yeah, that's that's basically EU party, right? And then there's the the Nationalist Party, the Nationalist Movement Party, and they are they're the, they're the, what people term as ultra nationalists. They're the ones who are ultra nationalistic. I think that's pretty much good enough to kind of like explain them and their leader. Um, Interesting enough, even though he's an ultra-nationalist, he's, never, he's not married. Uh, he doesn't have children. Uh, a lot of people note that. A lot of people suggest that he might be a closeted someone-someone. 
Um, I'm not going to comment on these rumors. I'm just pointing out that there's some people that think that way. Uh, but then there is the Kurdish, I like to call them, they're not literally called the Kurdish party, but they are the Kurdish party, right? And their, their, their leader was imprisoned, I think, recently. He's, he's kind of, he has some kind of issues with the government, basically, because I think it's pretty clear why. Um, they're very leftist. They're very socialistic. They're pretty open about it. And their main voter base are, are Kurds. And at one of the elections, a lot of the people from the Liber- Liberal Republican Party actually voted for this party because in Turkey, you need to have the 10% threshold to be in the parliament, basically, right? Well, we don't have a parliament, but, it, you know, you kind of... It's, it's like the Turkish equivalent of, of the parliament, right? You had to have the 10% threshold to, to have a voice, basically, to, to have representatives, you know, actually vote on things, basically, on the con- in the Congress. So they were voted in in that way. And those are the main political parties in Turkey, pretty much. So it's not like the two-party system. It doesn't have like a plethora of different parties like European countries have, but it also, it has its parties of its own. And historically speaking, in different elections, the Erdogan's party has consistently won elections by 45%, 50%, you know, like he got 50% of votes, 45% of votes, things like that, like his party, that is. So it's been very dominant, but recently the polls are showing that Erdogan's party is not as dominant. His party is still leading, but in terms of the coalition, the coalition is trailing, right? It it seems like the anti-Erdogan coalition, so to speak, has more votes so far than the Erdogan and the nationalist coalition. And I say nationalist, again, I'm talking about the ultra-nationalist, so to speak. The, the other nationalist party has more votes. Well, not more most, but like they're projected to have more votes in the election, uh, which is the which is a big difference maker, right? Because a lot of people who are traditionalistic, they don't want to vote for the Liberal Republican Party. They think it's incompetent. They don't think it's good, but they only have the uh, Nationalist Movement Party, right? But now there's another Nationalist Party that actually gives a proper op- option for people who are more traditionalist or more nationalistic but obviously it's not like it's not like the super based party anyway right obviously it still has its flaws and stuff like that but it seems like the more most sensible party so to speak nowadays so it seems there's a certain commonality amongst all of the major turkish political parties in that they're all pro-turkey in some way and they're all pro-sovereignty even you know to some degree of course but none of them seem to be sellouts of turkey as you can see even in the u.s where you have democrats asking for mass mass immigration and you know plotting the destruction of america or even the russian liberal parties which are calling for you know uh, some pretty radical changes or even even the opposition party in belarus or ukraine where you have some you know well ukraine i guess the liberals took over completely but the liberals in other countries they seem to be a bit more anti-sovereignty as as opposed to in turkey where even the liberal party itself has these roots in in ataturk sort of ideology and even they're based somewhat on strong on strong turkish sovereignty now i guess the question would be david now that we have a sort of outlook of all the parties the common people um what would they believe and of course this is a question to you subjectively what is your sort of perception how do you view what the turkish folks are speaking about on the streets on the internet you know just family members even um what's the view of 
Turkish people, obviously their viewers united about this disaster being horrible, the, the earthquake itself, but about geopolitics, about Turkish membership in NATO, about the Ukrainian war, what is the opinion of the Turkish people on the Ukrainian war, I guess, in summary? Like, how would they view it? You know, positively, would they prefer Turkish neutrality? Are they still pro-NATO? Um, are they pro-Zelensky or Putin? Or maybe they just want Turkish to stay out of it, which Turkey has been doing for the time being. What's really interesting is that a lot of different parties tend to be more ambivalent on on this. Like, there's not like one strict party interpretation of these things. Though, I think it is very clear that the Liberal Republican Party is more Ukraine leaning. Um, Erdogan is is more neutral. There's not really there's not really any party that's like saying, "Hey, let's like lean with Putin." So, if you're looking for like the most pro-Putin party in Turkey. It will be Erdogan's party, pretty much. It will be Erdogan himself that's going to be like most, and even he is neutral about it. And then there is the Nationalist Movement Party, which is, I will say, Erdogan uses them as kind of like baiting to see like what what people think, where they like, like he makes him say the statements to see like gauge some kind of response because the Nationalist Movement Party, for example, said something about leaving NATO, right? Like they said, uh, we don't need NATO. We've been here before NATO. We, we'll still keep being here after NATO. NATO is not necessary. You know, we might as well, you know, eventually leave it and stuff like that. And the response against him on that point was that, well, it wasn't like a super pro-NATO stance. It was more so that, yeah, I agree, national sovereignty is important. But it, like, he doesn't even answer the question, right? He doesn't even like talk about the importance of staying in NATO, like the idea of it. He basically says, well, you're the ones who collaborate with the Americans and set some U.S. bases in this country. We don't want that to happen. Like, he basically says, you know, you're bad. Like, you're the ones who, like, I don't see you as as genuine. Like, when you say, make these statements, you're not genuine, right? Which is, it it it, it sets the tone for Turkish politics very different because a lot of people, for a lot of people, the main issue isn't, like, who has what political stance, but rather who can execute the political stances that everyone knows that we want, basically, right? Like the core tenets of what we, most of us share in this country is like the basic idea in Turkey, right? Again, as I said, national sovereignty, secularism, all of this kind of stuff, right? And and trying to economically become independent of some sort, right? So who can best execute this is the is the main question. In, in Turkish politics. And this is a big reason why Erdogan is getting elected because, well, he has a proven track record. Well, he has a proven track record because he keeps keeps getting elected, right? It's a vicious cycle. And that's the main political line of argumentation that you see. It's like, it's it's not you believe this, this is bad or this is good. It's you did this, right? This is what you did and we will do this instead. Like, we will do it better, basically. Um, so... The, the Liberal Republican Party aren't like super into NATO, but they also say certain things that make them sound like as if they are very pro-NATO. Obviously, in terms of their ideals, they are much closer aligned to NATO ideals than Erdogan is. Um, but I think Erdogan looks at NATO as not as something that he wants to be in. So it's rather something that he must be in in order to remain as a, some kind of a power, basically, in politics. Because if Turkey wasn't in NATO, well, Turkey won't be in a good in a good state. But Turkey being in NATO obviously benefits the countries in NATO because Turkey has a decent, you know, military, right? That's that's the least I can say about it, is that it has a decent military. It's, a, it's quite a decent military compared to other countries, right? 
not not as good as the superpower countries, but it has a respectable military compared to, for example, European countries, right? And it is it is very strategically positioned, so to speak, right? In geographically speaking, and it is very much related into various different conflicts, right? It's the it's the gateway to Middle Eastern politics. It's the gateway to, in some sense, you know, Russian politics, right? From Europe in so, in one specific angle, it is closely tied with various different countries that. A very hot, you know, hot button. Like it's close to. I mean, it has a sea border with Russia. It has a sea border with Egypt. It has a border with Syria, right? Very big deal, Syria. It is very close to Iran. It is very close to Azerbaijan, Armenia, right? There was a conflict there recently. Um, it is very close to different Middle Eastern countries like Israel, Lebanon. I mean, if you're if you're America, you obviously are going to care about Turkey pretty much, and you'd rather have them on your side then have them against you, not because they're going to threaten you or anything, right? It, you know, Turkey is not as powerful where they can stand up to America. A lot of people in Turkey might, like, act like we can. That's, a, that's, that's not true, okay? There's no way we can stand up to America. But in terms of America's plans, you know, if, hypothetically speaking, we were completely against America, which right now it seems like we are, uh, it will be an annoyance, like a very heavy annoyance. Right. If America wants to do things in Syria and in other parts of the Middle East, it is kind of a prerequisite that they get right with Turkey. That's basically the idea. And we know this, which is why we play neutral. Right. We play neutral with Russia. We play neutral with America. But a recent speech that was made by someone from Erdogan's party, like a high ranking member, is he basically said very openly, keep your dirty hands away from us. Like this was before the earthquake happened. Keep your dirty hand away, away from us. We don't want you. Right. Which is pretty harsh, but one thing people need to realize: rhetoric in Turkish politics is always harsh. So when you translate it into English, it sounds very harsh, but for us, it's natural. It's it's kind of normal, right? We hear we hear this kind of rhetoric pretty regularly. So there's kind of this translation issue that is going on between you know the West and Turkey in this regard. But yeah, that's pretty much what I will say. That the kind of the general stance on geopolitics. Obviously, there are people that are liberals, right? Like people that are pro-liberal Republican Party and stuff like that that are pro-Ukraine. News media has been pro-Ukraine. And you know, a couple of years ago with the whole meme virus stuff, pretty much all of the parties except for like fringe political figures were they were all for the whole like lockdown stuff, right? The problem was how did they implement the lockdown? Again, right? The execution, the implementation is the question. It's not like lockdown the lockdowns are not the question it's implementing the lockdowns is the question and and that's something that a lot of people need to understand about turkey is that again in the west it's about what are the ideas in turkey it's about how we implement those ideas that's a very big difference between the political structure of two different countries i don't know how russia is with this regard but maybe russia might be same about this i don't know no i think that's a really good place you mentioned i was going to bring up the quote myself which i wanted to give the context i think it's really interesting that was regarding turkey exporting microchips and other products to russia still and the us accusing them of oh you're giving russia things that they would use against us we're going to imply they might do something about that and so that's why that that politician replied so in that in that regard which i think even if it was as harsh as was translated i think it's appropriate and that brings us to kind of a, the big question, I guess. I had mentioned 
the Quran burnings helping Erdogan. They give him a very good reason to keep Sweden out of NATO. It's just a good political reason. It's just a simple flashy thing that happened that he can point to and say, this is nonsense. What are we, what are we doing here? Of course, he already had the reason of Sweden and Finland both having a history of supporting PKK people fleeing justice being the Kurdish terrorist group that has done a lot of damage in Turkish cities and in warfare in the Turkish and Syrian border. But the U.S. has had their eyes on Erdogan for a while now as he has refused to be kind of a southern flank for the supporting Ukraine collective that the West and the U.S. and everyone are doing. And because of that, they've made it very clear that they want him gone. And that's, of course, led to them basically supporting the liberal Democrats and hoping that they can win these upcoming elections. And so I think there's been a lot of talk on social media about HARP, about directed energy weapons, about the possible artificiality of the latest disaster, or at least the influence of hostile forces. Of course, the evidence for this is interesting. There was a battleship, of course, going towards the Black Sea around this time. We have well-known politicians like the former mayor of Ankara, who's a close ally of Erdogan, saying that a 2017 earthquake he thought could have been artificial. Uh, the 1999 earthquake, some have noted that the same ship of the U.S. was actually passing by at the similar time. So all these things, people say this is conspiracy stuff. And for those who don't know, HARP stands for the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program. It's a... Uh, it's claimed, you know, to the public, you know, it's an ionospheric research program. It's by the military of the U.S. Of course, many in, in the know kind of view it as weather control, which through other initiatives at DARPA, which is the government, you know, secret defense research initiative where a lot of this stuff is done through. You, it's very easy to find the receipts on this being admitted to this having been used in the past and this being something that is very much being researched and looked into for all sorts of purposes for the U.S. military. And I saw Turkish Twitter talking about this. I saw a lot of people started talking about this, noting weird things in the sky, noting weird lights before the earthquake started. So, David, when it comes to those kinds of things, whether it's foreign influence and the motive behind it, it seems that you mentioned before that this is somewhat damaging. Well, this is very da he said this could be the worst thing that happened to Erdogan. It's going to be very damaging to him. It's going to be a bit harder for him to spin it. Do you think that uh, people in Turkey are... Some people in Turkey are thinking similarly, and uh, what are your thoughts in general on the possibility of that? On in terms of the U.S., I I gotta give this. I suppose I gotta point out this motive as evidence in terms of America's stance currently. America's stance on Erdogan. I think nothing can be clearer than Joe Biden's statement during the American election. Right, he's he said in a discussion with New York Times editorials, and this was supposed to be you know, kept hidden or kept private, but it ended up being leaked. He openly admitted that he will intervene in Turkish election, right? And this was talked about in media. And what's really interesting is that in legacy media, they kind of stopped talking about this. Um, I, obviously, Erdogan's fanboys probably make note of this, but this is why the whole national sovereignty question is very important because people will look at that and they will, they will start supporting Erdogan, right? Well, because they will see it. See, well, intervention. Well, this is against our national sovereignty. Well, even if you don't like Erdogan, not a lot of people will have a question mark on their heads. Well, at that time, now they probably have forgotten, but at the time they had a lot of question marks in their heads. They were like, wait, you know, doesn't this mean that we should keep Erdogan for our national sovereignty? Like, you feel like someone else, well, maybe we're doing what this guy wants. Like, it, it, it raised a lot, it raised a lot of question marks in people's heads. So 
The point is, the United States already has a motive. They already have declared very clearly, ever since Biden has been elected, I think more clearly that they don't want Erdogan in power anymore, that he is an annoyance. They'd prefer someone else in his stead now. And um, I think we need to we need to understand that first in order to understand the whole like harp discussion and all this kind of, all this kind of stuff. In 2017, at the time he was the mayor of Ankara, Melik Gökçek, who is a very well, he has historically been a quite a high ranking um, politician in Erdogan's sphere in Erdogan's party. In 2017, there was an earthquake in Ankara, and he suggested over Twitter that the earthquake might have been done in artificial manners, basically connecting to harp, right? So. This kind of line of thinking has already been present, and a lot of Turks themselves are talking about. Again, legacy media isn't talking about it as much. They, and when they talk about it, it's like they try to debunk it, right? But a lot of Turks are talking about the whole harp stuff and noting that before the earthquake happened, there was an American warship um, close to you know somewhere in 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 the Turkish seas, pretty much docked in the Turkish seas, basically nearly, and. Uh, there were some crazy flashing lights going on during the earthquake. So the whole harp discourse is very much active in some places in Turkey. A lot of people, I think, probably believe that, uh, myself being one of them, that this was, in fact, not just merely an actual earthquake, but this was rather Erdogan's doing. And I think uh, the motives are there, right? As I said, it's 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 very difficult to spin this positively in Erdogan's favor because earthquakes have always been a touchy subject in Turkish politics. And if a lot of people die as a result of the earthquake, it's not going to galvanize people and make Erdogan be supported more. It's going to make people point fingers at him. And for decent reasons, because, you know, why don't you prepare for this? Right? Like, like that's the main question. Like, we had 24 years to prepare for this. Why didn't you prepare for this? Like, what did you, like, what's going on? And this is the kind of main effect that it has. And I don't think this is like the, the, the last time America is trying, going to try to do things. I think they're going to try to interfere in other regards as well. I think America has pretty much shown that it has very good reasons to try to interfere in Turkish elections and to make the case that, make it so that Turkey has a very hard time uh, fixing its issues. I mean, the elections are going to happen soon. And for example, Turkish economy, I mean, it's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still not in a good stage. And you know, in order to fix your economy, well, who do you need? You need America, and America doesn't want you. So, it's it kind of get it kind of gives an answer on why the state of economy in Turkey is still really bad, and that's one of the other biggest reasons why. You know, well, that was the that was the big that's the biggest reason why Erdogan has way less votes than he had before, because previously, at least, you know, the economy was decent. Right, at least we were building stuff, right? Like that was the main, main argument. Now the economy is not as good, so uh, and you'd have to be straight up delusional to say that the economy is fine or whatever. Like it's not fine. The inflation is insane, and Erdogan's doing his absolute best to keep things in rain, but it's very difficult. So I think that's the that's the way that I can I can really look at it. And what was the other question that you had? Like you mentioned harp, and then you mentioned something else later on. Well, that basically covers it there, but I was more just talking about in general when, you know, people, you answered it talking about the TIS course and people in Turkey are talking about the the history of that. You mentioned the mayor and everything. This is something that people are going to say this is just crazy conspiracy talk and all of that, but this is something that, you know, if it is, the U.S. didn't do itself any favors making it not seem like this is something that it could have done. 
And again, of course, Syria is people are obviously always talking about the Syrian embargo and everything right now and how none of that has been lifted and how Syria is going to be all the sanctions and everything that are on it from the U.S. and how damaging that is to rebuilding and everything. And in general, it seems that there is, again, there's even cloud formations and whatnot. I would point people towards other uh, resources about electromagnetism and directed energy about storms and other weather formation and just blatant admissions from technocrats and universities about that stuff. But it seems that we are entering into this is part of, you know, fifth generation warfare. And I'm seeing a lot of chatter online from, I would say, trusted sources that they see a future of increased American, you know, sabotage activity like this, both inside Russia and I think in other places that are playing nice. So as this Russian push goes forward that we're going to get to a little bit later in the episode, I think maybe anticipate more of these kinds of dark operations being perpetrated on the enemies of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. As, as I've noted, I, I think it's, it's very clear that, as I said, the, the, the previous, well, the main policy is the neutral policy, right? But America doesn't like that. America only likes a country that is explicitly allied to them. And it seems to me that America, at the very least, the United States thinks that the other leaders are more amicable. And it's not too difficult to see why, because Erdogan, again, Erdogan has political Islam, which a lot of people know, you know, America, America uses Islamic extremists and all of this kind of stuff. But Erdogan himself is, in fact, against the Islamic extremists himself, right? He's against ISIS. He's against, well, at the very least, in terms of what they want, um, what ISIS wants and what Erdogan wants are very different things. And that's, that doesn't work, right? That doesn't work for the United States because he's, he's, in terms of like the Islamic world, he's very more moderate. He's very more controlled. He doesn't, his followers don't tend to be like crazy extreme, like again, Muslim extremists are in the Middle East. So it's it's very dangerous for America because it's it's some kind it represents some kind of traditionalism it represents some kind of religiosity it represents some kind of I will say even normalcy that when you have that in a country well it's going to be very difficult to be on board with for example pride parades it's very clear that the Liberal Republican Party will totally allow pride parades right in fact they were the ones who were pushing for who who were pushing for the Istanbul Agreement which. I don't know how many of you know about the Istanbul Agreement, but the Istanbul Agreement is pretty much a pro-feminist, a pro-LGBT agreement that different governments are supposed to follow, different organizations are supposed to follow. It's basically what America had with the legalization of the of the rainbow, like the Skittles marriage, and like the aftermath of it. They wanted to employ that in different countries as well, right? And that's basically the blueprint for it. And in fact, I, you know, Turkey actually did accept it at first, and then they said, no, we don't accept it anymore, right? Because it has, like, women's rights stuff, right? Which, that's another thing, is that legacy media point, points to a lot of, like, abuse towards women to kind of, and it, they galvanize a lot, like, the women's rights discussions that's going on, which definitely goes against what Erdogan wants, right? It, even though it's not even because he does it, it's because, you know, the whole women's rights discourse is completely dominated by liberal, liberal presuppositions, right? Um, even if Erdogan, and I think Erdogan does, uh, he does oppose, you know, abuse against women and all of that kind of stuff. People are going to have the perception 
that his beliefs are perpetuating such a thing, right? Basically, this is how liberals control the discourse. And the Istanbul Agreement has pretty, has pretty much the entirety of leftist liberal manifesto in place and different and this is why for example the i think the romanian church was against it the various different orthodox churches were against the istanbul agreement uh, as well because of the same reasons and Erdogan is against it but it's very clear that the liberal republican party right from the american perspective the liberal republican party is fine with this kind of stuff they're fine with lgbt they're fine with they're fine with women's rights issues whereas Erdogan, you know it's not as if he completely disagrees with the women's rights things it's just that he thinks that well it's not going to benefit me, right? It's not going to be something... And I'm not saying he's like a liberal in terms of like how... like I, He's obviously traditionally Muslim in terms of like how he looks at women. It's like he obviously shares the same concerns, but it's like, you know, if he tries to work on it, that's just going to be more fuel to the fire of the liberals, right? The best that he can do politically is just, just ignore it, ignore that it happened. So that's kind of what's going on. And I think from the perspective of the United States, and it's very clear at this stage that if the liberals come to power it will be easier to appease the Turks into accepting Americanist values, right? Whereas if Erdogan is in charge, well, he is kind of a stop against that. He allowed it in, to some extent so that he himself might have more power and also so that Turkey might be a bit stronger. Now that Turkey is gaining a bit of ground and trying to become truly independent in every single regard, again, as I said, Turkey is becoming an annoyance. Obviously, America can, as I said, America can always deal with it, unfortunately, but it's an annoyance. So America has to actually deal with it in a covert manner, which we will see if that works or not um, with, with the election. Yeah, for sure. And I think early on, you mentioned just the fact that, you know, US ships were spotted off the coast of Turkey. And I just want to remind everybody about seven to eight days ago, so exactly a week ago, the American strike group of George H.W. Bush, actually, the uh, Nimitz, cla um, Nimitz class uh, aircraft carrier alongside all, all of its adjacent, you know, other ships was docked actually in Piraeus in Greece. And it was again patrolling between Crete and Greece. So this huge, Amer I mean, the American Navy is, of course, broad and the largest in the world. But yeah, American ships were spotted all over the Mediterranean, at least in the last week or so. So at the moment, the American ships are quite close. And But most people, you know, bring up in regards to HARP, they mentioned just the fact that, well, it's this big, clumsy you know, piece of technology built in the 90s or 80s, and how can it possibly signal anything into the ionosphere and affect, say, tectonic plates in Turkey, which is thousands of kilometers away? Well, most people don't understand that the harp, at least center 400 kilometers away from Anchorage and Alaska, far away, was actually probably the prototype or the beta test of whatever technology is being used at the moment, you know, some sort of radio um, radio wave technology that could affect, you know, the atmosphere and sort of cause these potential disasters. And I would just point everybody towards, I guess, the uh, expert in the field, which would be Alex Jones, and uh, some of his clips on this particular event, at least his theories, could be seen on BitChute. Well, you know, you won't find Alex Jones on YouTube, and of course, uh, his team at Infowars.com, you can probably follow them over there as well. So that's just my recommendation if you want to find out more about HARP and its potential impact on tectonic plates and such things. But of course, the you know the the, the on the ground scientific theory is that hey, the tectonic plate of Arabia kind of moved towards 
you know, it kind of shifted three meters, at least that's what the scientists, the experts tell us, the Arabian tectonic plate and the massive Eurasian tectonic plate moved three meters, which it doesn't sound like much, but it caused this gigantic disaster, you know, billions of dollars of infrastructure destroyed, apartments falling, huge, you know, the earthquake, the aftershocks are still being felt today, of course, even a couple of days later. So, and, you know, people are suspecting maybe there'll be even more. So uh, it's a huge disaster. Whether or not this was caused by a man-made technology, which I believe the three of us here do agree there is something suspicious going on and technology like this does exist. Um, you know, another example we could bring up is in the Soviet Union, they had similar tests, not HARP. They had their own version called SURA uh, in the SURA ionospheric heating facility built in 1981. Actually, the Soviets were testing also ionospheric radio waves and how they can be bounced off the ionosphere and actually targeting certain places on Earth and what effects could be measured. But of course, this Soviet technology was about 15 times weaker, at least officially on paper, than HARP, you know, the American version. And Mind you, uh, all of this HARP and, you know, DARPA technology, it's it's all very top secret. You won't find any peer-reviewed studies. You won't find any studies actually on Google Scholar relating to its potential effects on the environment and even, you know, uh, with the water, the sky, anything in the atmosphere whatsoever, or even tectonic plates of that matter. So, again, it's it's very deep conspiracy, but we do have to believe technology like this, you know, this next stage evolution technology does exist because, again, technolo- technological progress has been apparently very stagnant since the 90s. You know, we're told, like, okay, Okay, these Nimitz-class aircraft carriers, they're like the top of the range. Even tank development has kind of stagnated. You see this in, the, of course, the Leopard 2s and the Armata tanks and, you know, the Abrams. So they're telling us technology has stagnated, but, um, yeah, probably not. And I guess this conflict or these geopolitical World War Three events will, of course, reveal some of the hidden assets of the world elites or these different multipolar, I guess, nations, what they have in store. In store. And of course, the US probably has some of the best tech, which you know they may be even using to destabilize Erdogan's Turkey right now. Yeah, this, uh, I'm sorry to cut you no, off, but on. like this kind of stuff that you're talking about is exactly like if, you know, if or when something like WW triple happens, I think the dumbest thing you can do is to like go and say, I'm gonna go fight because I'm a hero. Like that's the last thing you want to do in a situation like that because the the state of the warfare is going to be it it it's not like traditional warfare in the first and second world wars. First and second world wars was traditional warfare. It was about countries defending themselves. The third one is not going to be about countries defending themselves. I can I can I can assure you of that. It's going to be about using human beings as a like just putting tr- them through the slaughter machine is pretty much what I want to say. So I want to I want to get that uh, get that straight. It's going to be very important to point that out. It's it's not going to be for the, for the most part an actual traditional warfare. So the best thing to the best move sometimes is to just observe and not play. And yeah, we recommend all of our audience. We yeah. recommend all of our audience not get themselves shipped to the Black Sea to get zapped by a directed energy weapon. We just, just don't <laughs> just don't do that. But and I think we've done a good job on this show demonstrating why you shouldn't do that. But I want to pivot a little bit away from the earthquake specifically towards a few other things going on relating to Turkey, relating to some church stuff. And for those those of you, for those uh, libtards in the audience listening who may want to be like, oh, I'll go support the – I'm going to support the Liberal Democratic Party. And you maybe you're inclined to think, oh, maybe they will, they'll soften up on Greece, right? They won't want to be stealing back the islands. They don't want to you know, reassert the Ottoman Empire and kind of take back even more of what's kind of been encroached from the Christians there. But no, that is not in fact true. In fact, one of the high – one of the members of the, the leaders, in fact, of the Liberal 
Democratic Party has said, the Turkish government will change. We will be the new government, of course, claiming he expects to, be, to beat Erdogan in these elections. And he says about the Greeks, let them talk. We will show them what will happen to the weapons on these Greek islands when we come to power. And he's, of course, referencing recent rearmament of the Greek weapons, of the Greek islands, and then putting weapons and putting tanks, which Turkey views as aggression and violation of past agreements, of course. And as you know, all of us here on this show right now are Orthodox Christians. David, as a Turkish Orthodox Christian, is a more even more rare than me as a American Orthodox Christian. He is even a rarer breed where he is in, in Turkey. And he, of course, is right near where the Fanar is, where the Ecumenical Patriarch is headquartered, who, of course, is mandated to be a Turkish citizen due to the current circumstances. So, David, I want to get a little bit into that. And I know Dimitri has some stuff to say, too, about the kind of current status and the question of, you know, the Greek-Turkey issue. We know there are Greek rescue teams helping Turkish people in the earthquake right now. And regarding the earthquake, of course, we're going to have links in the description below to support people like good actual organizations and, and church links to support, not so you don't give your money away to a scam. So if you want to support and, you, and we encourage you to, you know, check the descriptions. But when it comes to these other things, especially with Greece and then uh, even with Ukraine a little bit, we're going to get into that. What is, um, we see that these parties are in agreement effectively. So is that kind of reflect public opinion or? Yes. So as I, as I had to repeat myself over and over again, not, not because you don't, like you don't get it. Obviously you do get it, but to like emphasize the point, national sovereignty, once again, it's about national sovereignty. Uh, Turkey is not a country like Western countries where we don't care about our borders. You know, it's like we do care about our borders. It's very important to us. And, when it's when it's particularly against bordering nations and we have claims about certain things, obviously we're going to be, you know, we're going to be very stringent about it. So, in, in a lot of regards, as I've said before, much of the main political parties, in some in some regards, agree with each other. It's about the implementation. So, I think it was in fact in fact it was Kılıçdaroğlu, the you know the leader of the Liberal Republican Party, who was, you know, talking about how. Um, they're going to keep their stance against Greece, right? He's going to continue his stance against Greece. And that won't be too unrealistic because, as I said, I mean, that's the party of Ataturk and that's, and that's the party of national sovereignty. And this is an issue of national sovereignty. So obviously he has to be strong. If he's not strong, then he's going to be not elected. One thing I would like to note is that when it comes to discussion about the presidency, who the, who the candidate is going to be against Erdogan is still, that's still not certain. That still hasn't been decided. And Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu is... It, it, a popular position is that Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu should not be one of the candidates. And that's because he just won't win the election. That's a basic argument. Like, I hope, that, you know, they want someone else, right? So there's like a couple of different candidates, like Muharrem Ince, who used to be part of the Liberal Republican uh, Party, who's very outspoken against corruption. He's... He's kind of a, you know, he's in a sense you could, in like, in terms of just pure political rhetoric sense, he's very, he's, he's very based in that regard. In terms of his policies, he's like, you know, again, national, he's pro-national sovereignty, all of that, but he's also a liberal, right? He's, he's a Turkish liberal, so to speak. So, you know, how, how long can you go with that, right? At the end of the day, though, he definitely would be much more difficult to deal with, with America, right? Like he is, He's, for example, compared to Kılıçdaroğlu, he's he's a very more he's a stronger personality. Kılıçdaroğlu is a much he's a very meek, he's a very weak personality. Not even meek, but he's a very weak personality. Whereas 
vitamin G is a stronger personality. So he's one of the possible candidates. Another possible candidate is Mansur Yavash, who used to be he used to be part of the Nationalist Movement Party, but then he became he moved to the Liberal Republican Party, and he's the mayor of Ankara, and he seems to be much more respected. There's not much I know about him, which might be a big reason why, like, he might be more respected. because we just don't know much about him. So we don't know much about his shortcomings. And he seems to have been a decent mayor at the very least. That's the basic, that's the basic understanding is that he seems to have been a, quite a decent mayor. He seems very sympathetic. He seems to be, he seems to know the people's pulse quite well. He seems to understand what people want. So a lot of people are saying if there's going to be a candidate, it should be him. And in fact, even in the polls, he's like one of the few ones that actually handily beat Erdogan in the polls. So that's the main idea. It's like if he ends up being the candidate, then he will most likely win the election is kind of the main talking point. Um, whereas the Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu is like the worst possible candidate from the liberal side, right? Like if, if there's going to be anyone, hopefully it's not him. So that's something to bear in mind. But obviously, I, in a sense... Whether you're the president or the prime minister, it doesn't really matter that much because at the end of the day, you know, it depends on your on who you are as a personality, right? I mean, our president used to be Abdullah Gül and the prime minister used to be Erdogan. Well, Erdogan was still the main guy at the end of the day, right? And um, Abdullah Gül wasn't even like that. Like, he was kind of okay in a sense, but he was in line with Erdogan and he basically let Erdogan do what he wants, wanted and then Erdogan became president, right? And you know, he still became the strongest man. It's the, it's like the same, it's the same story, right? Like it, it, it's about the personality. So it doesn't really matter who the prime minister and the, uh, and the president is. Uh, it's about who's the stronger personality, right? And that's what matters. So if, if, if Kulishoto becomes president and the prime minister becomes someone else who has a stronger personality, he's obviously going to overwhelm at the end of the day. But one of the things that a lot of people are looking for is that they want a different system. They don't want a centralized system which Erdogan is moving towards right he's moving towards a centralized system uh to consolidate as much power as he possibly can so that he may he and his ideals may stay you know leading Turkish politics but as I said that seems very difficult uh with each day no it's um I think that's a great I really want to mention this and I want to just quote Metropolitan Neofitos who we talk about so much on this show in 2020 he talked about this explicitly and he says Erdogan will fall, and after him, inexperienced people, pro-Westerners, Kemalists, will take power, and they will create big problems. And he goes on to then talk about some other things, which you can hear more about, actually, in some previous episodes. But I think it's just important to realize that this is very, very, this is a very important election. And personally, I'm hoping Erdogan pulls it out somehow. I think that would be the best for the, for just the, the safety of the world and the delay of, you know, full-on war between Russia and the West and, and all that. So I think from that perspective, I'm hoping that Erdogan can somehow pull this one out, but it doesn't seem that the enemy, his enemies are pulling out any stops. And it seems that Metropolitan Yovitos, who I consider an authority on these matters, doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to be optimistic about it either. But I know Dimitri has some other things about this too. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Erdogan is the guarantor of multipolarity, like a multipolar Turkey, which participates equally to all the other great nations of the world in 
foreign policy and in the United Nations. And of course, Turkey isn't on the Security Council. So that's also a big consideration. You know, I don't believe there are any Middle Eastern countries on the Security Council. So that's the other thing. Will Turkey be the first country maybe brought up to the UN Security Council if the UN even matters, say in a few decades time? I'm sure it had gone, you know, long term, that would be a kind of a vision to kind of bring Turkey onto the you know, the big board of all the other big players. And some of the players aren't so big these days. Like, you know, you find the UK and France, it's like, okay, how relevant are these nations? I'd say France, probably the more relevant one of a proper military presence in Europe. But again, like um, listeners do need to understand, and this is of course reflective in how nations, you know, see view Turkey very differently. So Israel may view Turkey in a certain light. And Erdogan, like David mentions, the fact that Erdogan's approach to, as well to domestic as well as foreign policy is very common sense centric. So he does, he actually does what's, he's a realist. He's a realist similar to Putin. He's a strong man. And of course he uh, doesn't, you know, sugarcoat things. So he just does things in a, in a way that's uh, productive and utilitarian in some regards and pragmatic. And notice this is how his response was with Assad, with whom his government, as well as Assad's government, they have signed a certain peace treaty over Syria. And those conflicts have, you know, at least stopped for the time being. So that's, Again, this probably triggers America a lot based on what David's saying. Look, what are the motives of the U.S. say using a secret technological weapon on Turkey would be one of the, you know, I guess the U.S. wanted to completely destroy the Assad regime in Syria, which they failed, you know, during the Obama administration, during the, uh, even I would say the Trump administration, they both failed to take out Assad. And Turkey has stopped all of its, you know, military actions, at least for the time being, in Syria, and now Syria and Turkey are, of course, united in relief efforts to resolve some of this earthquake disaster, um, you know, all the aftershocks and things like that that have occurred. So that, there's that consideration. So Turkey has been doing very common sense um, moves in foreign policy. And just notice Turkey's stance, at least as a multipolar superpower in this regard, would be Turkey, of course, supports Azerbaijan, which is a Turkic neighbor of, you know, it is essentially almost a Turkish satellite state, we can say. And, you know, kudos to the Azerbaijani lobby, which somehow has not just Turkish you know, support, but has Israeli support, U.S. support, and Russian support at the same time. So the Azerbaijani lobby in Moscow, in Washington, in you know Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, it is, you know, and in Ankara is probably the most powerful lobby in the world. People speak about the different ethnic lobbies, but I would say the Azerbaijani lobby is probably one of the more influential ones. <laughs> it's uh, funny Welcome enough. to the Azeri question here <laughs> on the show. So... Yeah, no, it, it should be considered because the Azerbaijani seems to get everybody in line. And meanwhile, Armenia, you know, we're just referencing David's comment about the Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. Armenia has only only has, it seems to have France on its side, and that's about it. And even France is a little bit, you know, a little bit on the limp side. Well, that's just because Macron and France hate Turkey. So, I mean... There we go. Yeah, so it, it's, it's all a big cat and mouse game. It's all related. So you have Turkey always backing up Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan will never fall as long as Turkey is strong, united, and has a leader such as Erdogan in power. Meanwhile, Syria, of course, is backed up by Shia Iran, as well as Russia. You know, Russia was there for a while now, but Syria has the backing of these two big, you know, again, multipolar giants. So all these nations, there is this uh, tug-of-war game, which team are you on in the Middle East? And we have these sort of groups. So Iran and Azerbaijan obviously have territorial um, issues. Southern Azerbaijan is, you know, Azerbaijani extremists. They do view the northern Iran as, you know, certain areas of northern Iran as Azerbaijani land. But, of course, uh, Azerbaijanis will not make a move against Iran ever. Well, obviously, it's it's not it's nonsensical. Like Azerbaijan is a small nation, Iran is essentially a superpower of the Middle East at this point. Um, it's it's they won't make a move because Erdogan will not let them. He's in charge, not 
you know, not U.S. or Israeli foreign policy, which would love Azerbaijan to get into a proper conflict with Iran. You know, we saw recently the Israeli bombing of some of the Iran facilities, which is completely, uh, I would say, out of pocket, street speaking, and of course, um, you know, completely unhinged. You know, almost provoking a world war in that in that regard. So Erdogan, we don't see him doing that. We don't see him bombing military facilities. We don't see him attacking Damascus. We don't see him, you know, having these air raids. He's common sense. He's properly approaching this question, and it, it can't. Nothing is more clear than his position on the Russian-Ukraine conflict. He's not supplying arms to Russia or Ukraine. He's of course supplying various technologies and still has these agreements between for gas. Russia supplies Turkey with gas through the Black Sea. Russia hasn't affected, hasn't touched the gas. Turkey still buys Russian oil at proper, you know, proper rates without these weirdo discounts. Like there are all these great considerations. At the same time, Turkey is facilitating these peace talks between Zelensky and Putin, Putin's government. So. There's this kind of middle ground Turkey is in right now. It's in a great state. And of course, this probably triggers, uh, you know, the great Satan of the world and all these globalist New World Order thugs who want to stir things up or even have a more uh, EU, more NATO-centric, uh, more maybe even New World Order-centric power in Turkey, you know, to sort of run the agenda. So can you imagine if Turkey began supplying arms to Ukraine, how different things would be? Probably quite significantly different in Zelensky's favor, and Turkey being such a close neighbor, like, there would be no delay between arms. You know, Turkey does have a gigantic military, and it has huge military stockpiles you know, all the way from the Cold War, so can you imagine those stockpiles actually going into Ukraine? This would be very bad for Russia, so Turkey actually taking this stance is really positive, I would say. Now, David, I had a question just in regards to, you know, thoughts on Turkish geopolitics and some of the hot zones around the world. Uh, so Turkey's sort of participation in the Ukrainian conflict has been extremely neutral at this point. Would you say going forward, is there any, what's the, in, in, in sort of short, how would you say, would Turkey continue this sort of neutrality? Would this be the outlook for 2023? If in a few words, how would you describe it? Your sort of prognosis. Uh, before, before I move, before I move, move on to Ukraine, I want to make one note because uh, I, I just, uh, I want to correct, well, not correct, but I want to clarify something I said when I talked about prime ministry. Well, another thing I want to note, uh, because people might not know this, is that the prime ministry was abolished in uh, 2018. So that's when Turkey moved to a presidential system. That's what I meant by centralization, because Erdogan was for, you know, abolishing the prime ministry, uh, and he wants to move to a presidential system, whereas obviously everyone else wanted the exact opposite. And Erdogan won, well, he pretty much won barely, but it ended up resulting in moving to a presidential system. So, well, but as I said, even before that, uh, it was about, you know, who has a per stronger personality at the end of the day. And with the presidential system, Erdogan has way more centralization, way more direct influence on what he can do instead of uh, well, well, the reason, well, the reason he explains basically one of the reasoning is like, well, it makes governing more efficient and all this kind of stuff. But you know, we can see that a big motivation for this was centralization of power, right? So, uh, if the liberals win, I can expect them to open that discussion again about the referendum, about moving away from a presidential system, because one of their biggest, one of their biggest themes is that well, we need to be a strong, we need to be a real democracy, and real democracy is decentralized, like this kind of like talking point. So, get, getting to the, I want to, I want to make that clarification. So, getting to the point on the Ukraine-Russia issue and Turkey's stance on it, I, I think, well, that's if one of the very few things that Erdogan has 
in favor of him is the way he is dictating this. However, it is also clear that there's a lot of there's a lot of how should I say uh, sympathy towards Ukraine, particularly from the liberals' perspective and liberal side. You're going to find very few people that's going to like Putin. In fact, again, the Liberal Republican Party they care about the values of democracy and and republicanism. And when they see someone like Putin, when they see someone like you know, when they see Belarusia, when they see all of these different leaders on Putin's side, and they they see the structure, they say this is the last thing we want, but this is what we already have. So. They see Putin as like what they already have in this country and what they want to avoid. And so for this reason, I think it's very reasonable that to, to suggest whether it's explicitly stated or not, Turkey is going to end up eventually moving closer to Ukraine if Erdogan loses the election. I think that's going to become very, very clear. I think that's something that we can all expect because at the end of the day, the, lib- the anti-Erdogan coalition is way more how should I say, very more sympathetic to, you know, as I said, American political views. Even though, as I said, Turkish politics is about implementation, not what you politically believe. I think at the end of the day, a lot of the people in the Liberal Party uh, see a lot of convergence between Kemalism and Western liberalism. And, well, that's normal because Kemalism was based on Western liberalism in the first place. It was... It was, based, it was synthesized with nationalistic beliefs, right? Pretty much. That's the, that's the main idea. And certainly, well, this is a bit of an aside, but this is why a lot of the ter- historical third positionists, in fact, uh, studied Kemalism and actually implemented some of his beliefs in their own country, right? And when I say third position, I think some of the audience or most of the audience know what countries that I'm referring to. Uh, they, they had a lot, a lot of their inspiration was from Kemalism because of it, because of the synthesization, right? So you can you can consider him as like the first like third positionist in a sense, but obviously the democracy standpoint was a lot stronger. Even though uh, you know third positionists were also in a sense rhetorically speaking pro democracy and all of that, but that's a different aside. What I what I'm trying to get to is that the Liberal Republican Party, even though they're Kemalists, I think the way that they will implement Kemalism is from the American liberal perspective. And if they stand in power long enough, I I pretty much think Turkey is going to end up moving to become a country that's like, basically like Democrat-led America. As, as crazy as that might sound to some people, I think that's like the end goal. And, and I'm not saying that the liberal Republican Party believes that. In fact, I think in, in many ways they will be against that. A lot of their constituents will be against that. The fact is, Many Turks are still against LGBT, right? They're still against LGBT. They're still against a lot of this kind of like rhetoric. They're definitely against like the drag queen stuff. But the fact is that stuff, like the drag queen stuff in touristic cities, there's a bunch of drag queen uh, bars, for example. Like it's allowed. Like you see it even still today, right? So imagine if the liberals take charge. I mean, that's going to be even if the, even if they're like not completely supportive of it, that's going to that's going to be a lot more normalized. That's going to be seen as a lot like a lot a lot more common. Erdogan is in many senses he's like a he's the only thing that's stopping a lot of like the traditionalism of Turkey from breaking. I think a lot of traditionalists in Turkey that are anti-Erdogan. And again, I'm not pro-Erdogan. I'm not anti-Erdogan. This is kind of just my personal perspective. 
unless there is someone else that actually maintains them, like maybe Meral Akşener, right? Who knows? You need a figure in Turkey, a traditional figure in Turkey that actually stops a lot of this because the fact is liberalism is making a lot of headway in Turkey in the last couple of years, even when Erdogan is in charge. So just think what's going to happen when Erdogan is is out. It's going to be even it's going to be even more powerful. It's going to be even more strong. It's going to affect every single political view that Turkey, geopolitical view Turkey has. So when Metropolitan Neofitas talks about like you know how these people are going to change things and they're going to try to make you know they're going to make decisions that's not going to work out. I can I can completely see that happening. Um, Turkey is at at its core a very traditionalist, a very conservative country at the end of the day, but. And even the liberals are, but that is hinging on the fact that Erdogan stays in power in a lot of regards, in my personal opinion. Because once you completely get away from political Islam, obviously I'm not a fan of Islam. I'm not like I'm not an Islam shill, as like some people that you guys yourselves have debated might be. <laughs> I'm just saying that you need you need some kind of religiosity. Uh, to be put in place. If you don't have that, at the end of the day, the logical conclusion of secularism is always going to be liberalism and nihilism. That's that's the logical conclusion of it. And the thing about logical conclusions is that once you reach to their to those, you can never go back. That's kind of that's um, that's kind of one of the both the fortunate and the unfortunate aspect of it. Yeah, and I think just you know a, a sort of sister ideology of Kemalism in a way is not not a sister ideology, but I guess emerged in the same twentieth century could be seen as a third position. Zionism. Some of the modern proponents, you know, famous Zionists at least in Russia, the Russian Israeli lobby, of course, how are they reacting to these events in Turkey? You know, the upcoming Turkish election, the earthquakes. Is they're actually very anti-Erdogan, funny enough. So we have figures such as Vladimir Solovyov, which. He's a famous, you know, spokesperson, probably the most famous journalist in Russia at the moment. Again, he's, I would say, a member of that Israeli lobby in Moscow. Again, making very stark comments about Erdogan, about how he wasn't prepared for the earthquake, almost in a very weird way. Again, uh, but there's more even aggressive, you know, aggressive people like Avigdor uh, Eskin, you know, and another person whose name, uh, you know, once I say his last name, you'll be like, hey, that's a bit on the nose. Uh, his name is Yevgeny Satanovsky, uh, Satanovsky, uh, Again, these like big time, big time Zionists, big time Israeli lobby uh, folks are very anti Erdogan at the moment in Russia, and they're actually uh, former, you know, former military, former Mossad agents uh, now working in journalism and actually writing for political commentary in Russia, writing on geopolitics, similar to Dugin in a way. So they kind of have a, you know, they're all in their sixties, seventies, almost heading towards retirement, but they're all experts on foreign policy, and of course they're. All making these anti-Erdogan comments. So that's very interesting. And the other big lobby in Russia, which is anti-Erdogan at the moment, is of course the Armenian lobby, which really doesn't like Russia's support for Azerbaijan and Russia's friendliness. You know, Putin, of course, offered to assist as well in the earthquake efforts, and I think he did actually provide some support, um, you know, to Turkey. But again, they don't like that friendliness between Russia and Turkey, uh, being Armenians. But the Armenian lobby, for whatever reason, despite all of their money and you know some of the wealth that they have in Moscow, at least in you know, Armenian oligarchs, it's, it's a big sort of theme. They don't seem to have any effect. So Armenians and Israelis seem to be very anti-Erdogan, at least in 2023. Interesting to observe. Now, one of the points I suppose I wanted to make was just the, the uh, concerning the uh, possible you know election of Erdogan, like 
you know, you do mention, David, very, very briefly that if he does lose, you know, Turkish politics may do a complete 180 or at least a 90 degree turn. And I think that would be that would be a complete disaster for world peace. Like, you know, and when we say world peace, I mean, the world completely tipping into World War Three, or at least, you know, something that again, resembles this sort of next generational warfare, which we see in Ukraine at the moment, where, you know, we have, you know, drones dropping chemical nerve gas, and this nerve gas, there's, there's no defense against it. When the nerve, can, nerve gas canister drops, like from the drone, as we saw recently, the horrific footage, I don't recommend anybody goes to watch it. It's not, um, I don't believe that it's on YouTube. You'll probably find it on Telegram, but I don't recommend anybody watch it. Essentially, it's a Ukrainian drone controlled by Ukrainians, drops a, um, drops essentially a bomb onto a Russian soldier with nerve, nerve gas, and the soldier dies, of course, in agony. And the nerve gas is completely invisible. It kind of affects the person's central systems through, and there's no real, real defense against it. You can't wear a gas mask. It kind of just gets into your skin, and that's it. You essentially just die in agony. So there's these weird technological like factors at play at the moment. And, you know, if the world does go into World War III, which, you know, we believe that this modern conflict, it, you know, it is leading somewhere to probably some great global catastrophe and calamity, which is what the podcast is about, discussing what the preconditions of that are and, you know, some of the prophecies sort of foretelling, you know, the sort of turbulent future we're about to enter into. I think we're going to see a lot more of those harp chemical technologies, some sort of COVID-19 type strains, you know, some pandemic, you know, the the labs that they talk, talked about in Ukraine, which Russians haven't actually captured any of those American-held labs. Notice how hard the Ukrainians are actually holding the areas you know, holding the Russians away from capturing any of those labs that, you know, were spoken about in the early months of the war. Russians haven't been able haven't been able to, you know, kind of search any of the famous US laboratories in the Ukraine. So just wanted to hand it off to Conrad with that. So just the, the news at the moment have been incredibly turbulent, not just about Turkey, but what's been going on in Russia, Ukraine. So essentially, we're approaching the end of February, the anniversary of the conflict. Geopolitics, uh, the discourse is extremely heated, like, Obviously, there's a lot of things going on, especially as some of the uh, most recent events. Just wanted to hear your comment on that. Well, when it comes to the anniversary of the conflict, if you want to, guys, check out David's channel, because who were the first people to have an interview and go live when this started? It was me and David, like 14 hours after the SMO started. Me and David were going live on his channel. And that was those, we did two streams on that and they both did really well. So if you want to see my thoughts right at the beginning of all of this and see how consistent I may or may not have been, you can go check that out. But when it comes to a lot of what David said as well about, I, I agree that I think if Erdogan falls, we're going to see a very quick shift towards the West and towards NATO and towards the value systems that come with that in Turkey. And I just want to also quote Metropolitan Neofitos a little bit. And he says, when all this goes down, and we can imagine Russia invade, Russia made sure that Crimea in 2014, when they weren't militarily prepared for a confrontation, even with this current military and whatnot with Ukraine and everything, they made sure that they secured Crimea to get that base in Sevastopol. And if Turkey starts really just starts like using their Black Sea access and supplying Ukraine and going full NATO shill. That's how you participate, something that we've talked a lot about on this show. And Metropolitan Neopithos said, and their friends, the pseudo-friends, the Russians, from friends will transform into enemies in one night, and there will not be a single city in Turkey which will not be bombarded. And this is the kind of thing, you know, we have to hope and pray that this that that, that, that doesn't happen. But it's it seems that the powers that be are intent to the point of causing possible earthquakes of making these sorts of things happen. And I want to, of course, get into some of the more specifics uh, about what's going on in Ukraine. But Metropolitan Neofitos, he reasserts, you know, we talk a lot about what he said on the show. And he says that 
I want to quote him one more time. These events that will come, wars, and the ones that will follow, migration, disease, will lead many, many people with good intentions, and not only to repentance, but to the knowledge of the truth and the truth of orthodoxy. And he said this in 2020, uh, in the midst of the very beginning, in the weeks before, in the beginning of, you know, the whole COVID thing. So I think these are still important words to heed. And, of course, earlier, before the SMO started, he had spoken about us being in the Third World War. And he even makes reference to, you know, people like, oh, like people are really into the idea of like secret prophecies and, you know, what's really going on. Well, I'll tell you a secret. Uh, he tells you the secret is to learn to share your food, your medicine, your soul, your comfort, your love and your support, especially with the weak. So if you're looking for something esoteric, that's the uh, that's the esoteric message is, you know, love and humility, because as hard times come wherever you are around the world, you have to. Uh, the only thing that we can do to overcome it is through, you know, prayer, love, fasting, and we know the good things that the Lord provides for us. So with all of that, be, again, be sure to check the description for supporting the people in Turkey and Syria. David's going to stick around. You know, he knows what's up. So we want to keep him around for the rest of the discussion. So with that, I want to ask Dimitri, what is up with this bridge in Ukraine and Romania? Is this Russia? Is Russia finally answered for the Kerch bridge? Is this how long it took for them to come up with a, you know, an, an adequate response? What do, what do, what's going on there? Yeah, so essentially the underwater drone uh, bombing the bridge, you know, Ukrainians actually spotting the drone, you know, um, operating underwater and, you know, having explosives attached to it, actually hitting the bridge and you know, seemingly destroying it. I don't believe the entire bridge was destroyed, but, you know, a large portion of it was damaged to the point of where, you know, it couldn't be used anymore. And so we're seeing this new generation of drone technology, essentially, that doesn't just fly through the air and can somewhat be spotted, but now travels across rivers. And why this matters is, well, obviously, you have the Black Sea, which we discussed in relation to Turkey and, you know, all these uh, naval naval bases that are all related to the conflict. But also Ukraine is full of rivers, you know, the Dnieper, of course, you know, the main river and all the other small ones attached. And, of course, Ukraine and, you know, cities like Kherson, their importance is, of course, uh, based on the fact that the river transportation is controlled by certain, by certain, you know, parties to the conflict. So either Russia or Ukraine. So who controls either side of the bridge? Bridges um, have been notoriously difficult to destroy. Like even HIMARS missiles have been, you know, they've been firing at Russian bridges, but unable to really to destroy them. So it does take a lot of missile strikes, and it's not really economical to fire missiles one after the other to completely eradicate a bridge. Bridges can be easily. Um, repaired again, like we see even in the Kerch Bridge, like that was a horrible terrorist attack. But again, that bridge was repaired in what uh, I believe it was about 48 hours, 72 hours. So, it, you know, the bridges can be repaired quite quickly. So now we're seeing a new sort of uh, approach to it, attacking the foundations of the bridge through underwater drone strikes. So underwater, like almost like torpedo submarine type drones, and they essentially uh, just swim at really high speed towards the bridges and. Uh, you know, destroy them from the bottom up, maybe attacking the foundations. Uh, look, the, uh, this sort of new technology is, of course, uh, on one hand, exciting for all the nerds and military nerds to see, but on the other hand, it's, yeah, quite uh, showing us that, hey, Russia is actually willing to attack Ukrainian infrastructure in order to actually gain ground in this conflict, which, hey, we've been speaking about it for months now, and, you know, Russia hasn't attacked the electrical stations for the first six months of the conflict, hasn't targeted the bridges until... Well, it seems to be a year into the conflict. So, look, maybe we're reaching a certain breaking point where we're actually escalating it to, you know, some sort of, uh, a, you know, proper warfare where, you know, and it is, frankly, it is already a proper war, right, Conrad? Hundreds of thousands of people are dead. Um, it's about, you know, it's just about time that, you know, it's been, it comes to a certain, comes to a certain halt and, or at least sides, 
at least come to this realization that hey well we can't play we can't participate in this war kind of half-assed it's about actually getting involved properly and bringing it to some sort of conclusion i think so yeah this new technology is really uh on one hand scary on the other on the other hand uh, somewhat exciting that look well well, there's going to be new developments, I think. Well, and I think it's going to, it seems that this bridge has something to do with the access from the West towards the Odessa region, and that could indicate Russia's escalation, and they may, may be trying to push all the way there to take all of the Black Sea. And this, of course, comes as Moldova moves closer and closer to the West, you know, seeming like they say they're still neutral, but they're making it very clear that, you know, they themselves have decided to completely be anti-Russian and everything, which brings the Transnistria question more to the fore as well. And in general, the Russian offensive, as we've talked about so much, as February comes to an end, as that year anniversary comes up, we expect just big, big moves. And again, we don't know exactly what direction that's going to come, but if this is any indication, perhaps, perhaps they really will be pulling out a big, a big surprise out of the hat, which would be extremely interesting and bring that, that that would if if we believe that the west is looking for a reason to escalate short of some kind of you know weird tactical nuclear psyop weird stuff like that it seems that perhaps they could use this moldova thing and everything like that some kind of bringing of another party into this as a as a justification for escalation and they've been looking for a, a middle ground between a full nato attack you know forming like a coalition of you know maybe like 65 percent of nato and they send troops would practically speaking wouldn't be much different than nato actually getting involved but they're trying to just you know they know there's electoral consequences when you actually initiate some of these things and whatnot so they're trying their best to to, to, to finagle their way out of it but still achieve their final goal which is total regime change and you know total global homo zog victory at the end of the day so we are we're watching very closely here but I want to see, Dimitri, you have anything on the on the speculative of advance. If you have any new insights for us, I'd love to hear it. But if not, we might also start to move into a little bit of other orthodox discussion with, with David here. But I want to hear what you have. Yeah, so on the advance end, there's a lot of, you know, firstly, on the more peaceful side of things regarding rebuilding, Mariupol has been, you know, it's been churning, really. The city is being rebuilt quite successfully at this point. So it's good news that, look, even after the conflict's done and peace has, peace has been achieved in the Ukrainian land, you know, by whichever side wins in the end, um, there's a chance that, you know, rebuilding can can be completed in a very short time. And, you know, an example of this is that, well, I'm not sure if this is a positive story or not, but Russia has invited uh, North Korean police officers. OK, very interesting story, actually. So Russia has officially signed a contract with North Korea to import. I don't know if import would be the right way, maybe to contract or to hire 300 to 500 North Korean men aged 19 to 27 uh, who are married. Now, these are the you know, these are their uh they had to meet these standards. So they had to be young, married, and they're all servicemen in either military or police forces to visit the Donbass region to assist in rebuilding it. So notice these people are all either police or have served, and obviously all Korean, North Korean, you know, service is mandatory. So essentially all of them have military experience, and they're essentially rebuilding some of the Donbass uh, infrastructure, starting from the energy stations and onto bridges and schools of, and this nature. So essentially we have Russians almost, uh, you know, trying to rebuild at least some of those regions with uh, foreign foreign workers and uh, i guess the interesting analogy historically would be uh, you know the world war world war 1 because all the russian men were conscripted to fight in the first world war the russians uh, needed to you know complete one of the great railways and leading from moscow to murmansk right in the north and of course russia invited chinese um 
uh, from the Chinese Empire, actually, Chinese laborers, you know, very young men as well, 19 to, you know, 19 to 20, 30, unmarried, kind of just looking for work, looking for an adventure, invited them to Europe to complete this railway. Most of those Chinese men, of course, when the Russian Empire went into a revolution, they all joined the Bolsheviks and became, you know, the Chinese Bolshevik communist brigades who started, you know, maraudering and killing people. So there's that consideration too that, you know, we, you know, who you invite into your country, you know, you've got to make sure, like, if, if the whole situation in Ukraine breaks down, there will be 300 to 500 North Koreans, um, essentially, you know, almost with, with what kind of oversight. There's that consideration, I think. So that's on the rebuilding end. On the military side, we have, of course, the surrounding of Bakhmut, which is somewhat already confirmed. The Russian, the Wagner division, the Wagner mercenaries are cutting off the main highways leading into Bakhmut. Bakhmut, technically, that city that's been under siege for already two and a half months is already almost completely surrounded. Ukrainians inside this really tough footage coming out on mobile phones where Ukrainians in Bakhmut are saying, look, we have no more weapons. We have, we're running out of ammunition, frankly. We have the weapons, but we don't have the ammunition, the explosives, the rounds to keep fighting off the Russians. And as we said on our last episode, it would be completely honorable and fine for them to actually bring out the white flag and surrender. Like they've been, you know, they've been defending this city for two or three months now. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with actually surrendering because you've actually met your defeat. And Russians actually treat POWs quite well. So uh, my recommendation, I guess, personally would be to the Ukrainians in Bakhmut to just surrender. There's no point in dying for Zelensky. You have fought valiantly and bravely. And even look, even the Azov neo-Nazis in Mariupol surrendered in the end. So, there's no shame, like, Odin will not look down on you, you know, in your sort of, if any of you are pagans, uh, there is nothing really shameful about that if your most elite pagan commanders have also surrendered in Mariupol earlier in 2022. So there's that consideration. Bakhmut is falling. The Russians are, uh, their morale has been extremely, uh, you know, boosted. Of course, uh, in Vuladar, Ugladar, the, uh, one of the fronts on which Russia was advancing to surround Bakhmut, there was a slight defeat, so a few Russian... Um, there, there was some footage coming out of Russian destroyed tanks, about five tanks or so being destroyed by Ukrainian military. But again, the news are quite shady. The Ukrainian side is reporting that a lot more Russians have died at, um, at the Ugladar approach. And we kind of, we don't really have concrete news, but yes, the Russians were defeated. So on one hand, the, the, the battle took place and the Russians did lose. They did lose some men. We're not sure exactly what numbers, but I don't think this defeat really offsets the Russian offensive on Bakhmut at all. So the Russian military, again, as Conrad said, like the big push will be coming in the next two weeks. So be aware, you know, follow us on Twitter, you know, get ready to, you know, it's kind of view everything in first person because, you know, it's about to get really heated, I believe. And that's kind of on the military side of things. So that's been the weekly news, I suppose. That feel when you'll never be a North Korean military policeman in the Donbass region. Why even live? But, you know, in defense of that, which I'm I completely agree with what you said. You got to watch out what foreigners you ship in. But North Korea has really shown its loyalty in the past, you know, few months on this. So if anyone's earned it, it's those, it's our, it's our Kim boys. But I think, uh, I think we want to maybe go into a few ecclesiological things. Obviously, David has been releasing some great content recently on iconography and general theological stuff on his channel, which is fantastic. We want to get him to 10k subscribers. So go over there and subscribe to his channel. But I think Dimitri had a question regarding Turkey and the ecumenical patriarch that he wanted to ask David before we get into some more just strictly orthodox stuff. It's This does have to do a little bit with geopolitics and what we've been discussing. Dimitri, if you want to ask. Yeah, so David, I hear some of the Greek Orthodox folks and you know even Orthodox people from Turkey, they bring up this big issue of the ecumenical patriarch is always under pressure from the Turkish government. There's always this pressure from the Turks onto the Greeks, onto the 
you know, because they, because of course, all the Orthodox people in Turkey have to be Greek, right? Um, that's the that's the being, that's the big jargon there. But obviously, that's not true. But you know, they do say that there's this sort of racist pressure on the patriarchate, and there's also this condition, right, that the patriarch of Constantinople, the patriarch of you know Istanbul, the ecumenical patriarch, he needs to be a citizen of Turkey in order to become the patriarch. There's this condition. Now, um, how would you describe this condition in light of the fact that, say, there has been some ties between, uh, at least since the 1960s, since the time of Patriarch of Phenagoras, which everybody, I recommend, read up about that patriarch. Since the 1960s until now, really close relations between the ecumenical patriarch and the U.S. State Department and Goark, the uh, Greek uh, diaspora in America. So there are these tight-knit, uh, I guess, uh, tight-knit relations between the Americans and between the American government and the Greeks in Turkey, um, does this somehow impact, and how does this all play, how does this all tie in, David? Is there anything you have to say about that? Yeah, well, uh, the the point about, you know, Turkey, the Turkish government having some kind of pressure or, or say in the election of the ecumenical patriarchate, etc., I mean, that's obviously true. I mean, you, you yourself have noted, I mean, he, the ecumenical patriarch has to be a Turkish citizen. I mean, that already gives you an idea that they clearly have a say already and even that kind of a influence, even though it's not like a super, like, you know, the Turkish government just only has to approve, right? The Turkish government only has to approve who the patriarch is, which is, you know, the role, the, the relationship between the Greek, the Greek patriarchate and the Turkish government for like ever since the conquest of, you know, Constantinople, that's, that's been the way the things have been. And so the, the president cannot just say, well, I don't like, you know, he just he just approves, right? Like he approves who the patriarch is going to be. But even something like that, I mean, that's not a comfortable precedence, even though it's something that has been the case for six hundred years or so. Still, not something comfortable. So I think it's I think it's natural to understand that the ecumenical patriarchate is going to be who has primacy, right, in the Orthodox world today, uh, is going to look for geopolitical groups that's going to be interested in its independence so to speak and from like this is kind of my own you know get guesstimation is that the relationship that the ecumenical patriarch could have especially you know after the greek independence and all of that and after it became certain that constantinople is going to be remained in turkey's hands is that well you know we can't go to russia russia you know you know, Russia at that time was obviously communist and they didn't like Orthodox Christians. Um, there's no other superpower or anything close that resembles that that's even interested in us. Well, there's America. Well, they're the only ones like that that can possibly be of benefit. Uh, the Americas, the Anglo-American establishment, etc. So like we might try to be in good terms with them. Now, look at the Orthodox world. I mean, it's making gains in the Anglo-American world in some sense, like compared to previously where the presence is becoming more and more clear, right? In England, for example, um, you had Metropolitan Callistus where recently you had a lot of work being done on Orthodox Christian theology in the West, in the, in the Anglo-American world. So I think there's there's a lot of connection in, in that in that sense. And so in America, I think it only makes it only makes sense that the ecumenical patriarchate will move to that world. But obviously, America, the Anglo-American, the Atlanticists, you know, whatever you want to call them. They're obviously interested in themselves, and one of the things that they're interested in is destroying religiosity, to destroy traditional religions, and that's precisely what's been going on, right? This is precisely why you had a lot, all of these suspect patriarchs 
um, ended up being elected. Uh, a lot of American influence being in the ecumenical patriarchate, right? Uh, the close, tight friendship between the ecumenical patriarchate and Joe Biden specifically, not just America, but Joe Biden specifically, is something that I that I noted before Joe Biden was even elected, right? I, I've noted this, you know, three day, three years ago. So this is something that we this is something that we see very regularly, un- unfortunately. And and so yes, there is indeed pressure from the Turkish government, but right now, uh, the, this this ordinance has also allowed for there to be pressure also from America, which you know you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know what are you going to even what are you going to even do? Well, you can honor the previous agreement and go on with the Americans, which is going to lead to your church being more and more, how shall I say, less orthodox as time goes. Unfortunately. Obviously, the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese in America, I will still say it's obviously Orthodox. It's still canonically Orthodox. And there are many great parishes I've been to. I've, I mean, I've, I was baptized in a Greek Orthodox parish in America. So obviously, I don't think they're like all bad or anything like that. But it's very clear. It's very clear that if you're Orthodox and you look at the state of the Orthodox Church in the West, it's very clear that, that the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese is moving to a certain direction. But just churches that are very pro-Western in a sense, are all like moving to that direction together, right? It's really churches that are more skeptical about Western influence, like traditional, you know, Greek churches, right? And, and, and monasteries in America, in Greece, etc. And, you know, the, the Russian church, for example, right? They're, they're, they're obviously going to be more skeptical towards just general Western influences, which is why uh, Rokor, you know, the Russian church in America is being targeted pretty heavily um, by the American government for this, precisely for this reason. So I think that's something that we need to we need to consider. But the I think the ecumenical patriarch is just they've been allied with the U.S. for long enough. It, it, this is why we there's this like confusing arrangement where like they don't really need to protect themselves from the Turkish government per se, like exactly any day anymore, like. You know, we don't need that, but now we need to be on America's good side because having Turkey and America against you is not a good sign. And 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 one thing I want to note, and and you know, it's one problem I, I guess I have with Russia is that they're not the best superpower that you want to have your back. And I and I think the reason why I'm saying that is because of the whole like you know Georgia Armenia stuff. Even though you know there's obviously a lot more details into it. America, at the very least, on the face of it, is a lot more reliable in protecting you against others, in a sense, than, than Russia is. Though, in the long term, obviously, you'd rather have Russia on your side in the long term than America. So, it's a very, it's a very confusing situation in that regard. Um, and, and so, if, like, if the American patriarchate hypothetically just like, ended up saying, okay, Russian government, have our backs, um, I don't know, that will, be, that will be a bit more difficult to it's you know you'd you'd have like you'd have a Russian back to communal patriarch against America and Turkey. Yeah, that's not something you want to have. So it's it's very difficult to be the communal patriarch today. That's all I can say. Well, that was that was fantastic. I I agree with that analysis there. And unfortunately, we're really getting close to running out of time here. So we're going to have a lot of David's stuff on icons and everything linked below, of course. But I want to give David the chance to any finishing words here on, you know, the state of the church, ecclesiology, Turkey, what's going on. 
Uh, I'll give him the last word here, and then we'll plug everything and wrap it up. Well, most that I have I have to say is just generally speaking, whether you believe that there's going to be a third world war or not, at the end of the day, there's there's a very there's a big shift in the world. There's always been geopolitical problems in the past that a lot of people were panicking about. A lot of people were wondering, you know, is that is something big going to come out of it? And then at the end of the day, nothing really big came out of it as a conclusion. But we're living in a time where these things are actually happening quite regularly. And I think really the meme virus is something that a lot of people need to bear in mind because that's that's the first time I have personally seen a global scale action against, you know, sense like what should I say? Common sense sensibility, I suppose. That's the first against you, time against me. Just that's just yeah. against us. <laughs> yeah, previously there's been many things like the whole Ebola stuff. Like remember that? Like, but at the end of the day, everyone knew at at some point. Everyone knew with the Ebola stuff that like nothing's really going to come out of it. At the end of the day, it's just it's just like some virus in Africa. It's like it's you know sanitation, all of that. It's it's not going to be that big of a deal at the end of the day. It's what most people thought, and that's why what I thought with the whole me virus stuff. I thought. That it's just some, you know, it's just some virus in China. Who cares? But we saw what happened at the end of the day, right? We, uh, these global elites are finally making moves against the people to enact their agendas. One of them being depopulation, all of this, other, all of these other agendas. And the best way to de- for depopulation is demoralization. Best way for demoralization is take away your the sources of morale. And one of the biggest sources of morale, one of the biggest sources of common sense what the biggest source of normalcy and civilization itself is religion traditional religions particularly and we need to bear in mind that the best way to attack these traditional religions like christianity is not from the outside that has been done for 2000 years and even longer than 2000 years right if you're mindful of the old testament period but it's been it, you know there, there's been a direct attack against christianity for 2000 years and it obviously hasn't worked i mean communism was so devastating and communism fell like there's many communists today but like communism fell communism is destroyed but orthodox christianity stands i mean that just gives you an idea how strong this faith is against direct attacks but the best way to try to attack them is from the inside and also to make them think right make them chain themselves and this is something really important people need to realize is that orthodox christianity is is a very powerful religion but if its adherents chain themselves, then that power cannot be used or actualized. And that's the main modus operandi that these people are operating under is that they're trying to change, chain these people and limit themselves, limit their own strength. And if that, if that happens, then, you know, at that stage, we're going to be in the end times now, aren't we? So I think that's something that needs to be considered, needs to be bore in mind when just looking at things that happens in the future. At the end of the day, we don't really know what's going to happen in the future. I mean, one th- one prediction that I made that I was completely wrong about the Russia thing is I thought it will just all be over in a month, in a, in a month or so. And obviously, I was wrong because I, you know, because the for many reasons, well, the warfare is going in a very different direction. They're they're doing much more methodically. They're they're trying to they're looking at it in a very different perspective than like let's just take take stuff as quickly as we possibly can. It's 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 very clear that this is more like a long run issue and also a you know economic I should say economic battle, so to speak. And and 
multipolarity issue, I suppose. But that's something that we also need to be mindful of is that there's there's a lot of things that going that goes behind the scenes, and I think even with spiritards like us. We have to be, I think we, one, one thing that makes us much better and much more sensible than other people is that we understand the fact that there's a lot of things going behind the scenes that we don't even have evidence about because it hasn't even been leaked. And a lot of this plays into what happens in the future. So what we do is that we understand the direction and most importantly, the spirit of what these people are trying to do. And that's pretty much what I had in, I really have in mind in the last couple of days. Oh, thank you so much. I agree with so much of that because it's like, oh, they'll never lock us down for COVID. Oh, Russia will never invade Ukraine. Oh, the U.S. will never blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. Like, oh, the all sorts of this. But no, it's all happening. And spoiler alert, so much of this has been talked about by people in the 20th century that are known as saints in the Orthodox Church. And I don't think it's any coincidence that here we are talking about Turkey and the Black Sea and Russia and Ukraine which are the two most prophesied about lands when it comes to anything orthodox. So if it, when, when it comes to where you're looking to perhaps put an interest in these, in these times, it's the, the prophecies say that perhaps some renewed interest in orthodoxy will come. So if that's you listening, you know, go check out your local orthodox church. But with all that being said, we've got to wrap it up here. It's been a great show. It's one of our, possibly our longest show yet. So be sure to subscribe to us on Substack, worldwarnow.substack.com. Check Dave, check our links and, below for all of david's stuff his youtube channel his substack's been recommended on our substack for a while so check out all of his stuff of course follow us on twitter world war now underscore follow me on twitter Gnomrad. follow dimitri at o canonist follow uh david at medwhite acolyte he has a great twitter account and uh, be sure to follow us on telegram world war now telly t-e-l-e uh this has been a great show dimitri uh, i'll give you the last word yeah, just thank you for your um, really on-point analysis today, David. And I mean, my condolences to all those, you know, hurt, of course, in the disasters in Turkey at the moment. And you yourself, David, stay safe. Of course, we're not sure what will happen in the short term. But, yeah, we appreciate all the, you know, good comments you've made about, you know, your people and your particular nation. And, you know, uh, just wish wish the Turkish people all the best. And I think uh, we'll have, we'll definitely like to bring on David, if he has time, closer to the Turkish elections, perhaps, and, uh, you know, maybe in uh, May sometime or in June, right before or during the Turkish elections to kind of give us, an, again, an on-the-grounds, really detailed look similar to the one he gave today about exactly what's happening in Turkey. Because, again, the future of the Middle East or maybe even world politics will, of course, depend on the outcomes of this election in the middle of the year. So we have our you know ears open and our eyes kind of peeled. So we'll be looking out for that. And we appreciate you coming on today, David. Thank you, and I appreciate you having me on. God bless everybody.